Well, I'm very happy to introduce Emily Allen to you all this morning as she comes to preach uh, the Word of God to us. Emily is an uh, is active um, student here at Asbury uh, Seminary. She's been an active part of our uh, church life for I, about a year and a half or so, something like that. Is that right? Emily's parents, she's got both her mother and her father are Methodist pastors, so look out. I mean, wow. And uh, we are, have just been privileged to have Emily here with us. About two years ago, I heard Emily preach. I didn't tell her that, but I did. She preached at a little noon Eucharist service, and uh, I remembered that and remembered her gift for that, and I'm thrilled to have her come preach uh, to us this morning. Most importantly, if you get to know Emily at all, you'll know that she is passionate about Jesus. She loves people. Pretty good combination. Emily, please come and share the Word of God with us. Well, good morning, everybody. I am so grateful for this chance to stand in front of you this morning and to share, and thank you, Rick, for the, your kind words of introduction and for inviting me to share today on such a rich um, passage, really set of passages. Um, I want to thank you all for allowing me to be a part of this church for the last just over a year and a half, and I just want to say that this community has been to me a place of healing, a place of peace, a place of renewed hope in and focus on Christ, and a place of deep community, and so I'm so, so grateful. Well, we're in the season of Lent. 40 days leading up to Easter, and we're working our way through the Gospel of John, thinking about discipleship, reorienting our lives towards Christ as we prepare for the Easter season. And last week, we heard Rick preach on uh, the story of Nicodemus in John 3. Today, we're in John 4 with another conversation with someone who's curious about who Jesus is and what eternal life is. And so I'm excited to dig into this with you today. Well, let me start with a story. In the summer of 2020, I had just graduated from college, and I went on a camping trip with some of my best friends to the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York, where I'm from. Uh, We had been camping, and we decided one afternoon we should go on a hike. And so we found this mountain loop trail. It was rated easy. We were ready to go. Uh, You know, it's not a high peak climb, it's not a backpacking trip. We were just going to go on this kind of day hike. So, sort of spontaneously, we headed out, we set out with what we had with us, which was basically just some waters and a few granola bars. I had my Nalgene water bottle. One of my friends and her boyfriend only had one plastic water bottle between them, but we figured it would be fine. Well, the hike ended up being much steeper than we had expected, and the day as it progressed became excruciatingly hot. By the time we got to the top of this rated easy hike, much later than we'd expected, almost everyone in our group of six of us was nearly out of water or completely out of water, and we still had our whole descent ahead of us. This is one of the few times in my life that I recall being genuinely afraid for lack of water. I wasn't worried that we would die, right? But we all felt faint and overheated and exhausted. 
Um, also, this was 2020, so even as we were rationing our water between us, we were trying to be extremely sensitive about COVID and not share too much if we didn't need to. As we were hiking down this mountain, we all experienced real thirst and a little bit of desperation. Of course, we could have asked some strangers for water if it had come to it, but our main focus was to get off the mountain so we could drive to a town where we could refill our water bottles and get some fresh water, which, of course, we eventually mercifully were able to do. The feeling of drinking cold water after the fear that we had felt on that hike was pure relief and joy. Water is essential for life, right? A person can only live for about three days without water. And the necessity of water for life is evident in our texts today. Central to the story in John is a location of water supply, the well that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And I was so interested to see that they actually, uh, scholars and others know where this well still is. The location is still known today for literally thousands of years. Women would visit the well each morning to collect water and bring it to their homes for everyday use. Usually they would go together in groups in the morning when it was cooler. So our story starts in this place at the well, but it's at noon, the sixth hour as the text says, and it's in the heat of the day. I want to ask you to sit with me for a moment as we imagine the situation in this story. A woman, perhaps middle-aged, is in her home. The man with whom she lives has just laid down for a nap during the heat of the day as he rests from work in the fields. Sensing the quiet in the town of Sikar, she wraps her head covering more closely around her and picks up a big clay jar and places it on her head. Looking out her door, She makes her way from her home to the path that leads to the well. A group of unfamiliar men passes her as she walks. They're dressed differently and they're talking loudly. Are these Jews, she thinks to herself? What are they doing in Samaria? A young woman with a baby in her arms sees the woman with the jar pass by her and looks scornfully away. The woman wishes to herself that she didn't have to make this journey every day, out in the public eye, just to get water, just to survive. It's especially warm today, and she feels her body begin to sweat, even as she covers the short distance. Water will bring some relief, she thinks. As she draws near to the well, however, she can see that somebody is seated by it. Her heart sinks. This is not what she was hoping for, but... It's too late to go back now. Whoever it is will be suspicious that she didn't come with the other women earlier in the day. She'll just have to avoid eye contact and draw the water as quickly as possible. Resolved, she lifts the jar off her head. But as she does so, the man turns and looks at her. He's a Jewish man, she can tell. And he says to her, give me something to drink. She's shocked, a little bit disarmed, and says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? A Jewish man, known to be a pious teacher, and a Samaritan woman, 
who has lived a life of brokenness and shame. It's an unlikely and, frankly, a scandalous pairing at the well. Think of all the barriers that are here between these two humans. There's a cultural barrier. John comes right out and says in the text, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. There's a gender barrier here. Dr. Craig Keener explains in his commentary on John that Jewish sages of the time of Jesus would have advised Jewish men strongly against unnecessary conversation with women. There's a moral barrier here. For a man and a woman to be speaking to one another at a well would have had connotations of a sexual proposition because of the Old Testament stories of Isaac and Rebekah and Moses and Zipporah meeting at wells. This is not to mention the moral state of the woman that will be soon revealed. You can almost feel the original reader holding their breath. What's going to happen? What will Jesus do? Why did he initiate this conversation? We as readers today can feel the anticipation of the moment, though, right? Knowing that the man to whom she is speaking is good. I want to highlight a special foreshadowing of Jesus' goodness um, that's just in the, the verses before the ones we started with this morning um, that, I, that I loved so much. Jesus is walking, it says in verse 3, from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And verse 4 says, but he had to pass through Samaria. And Dr. Keener explains um, that although this is the shortest route, there's no necessarily need for Jesus to be taking the shortest route. This is further evidenced by the end of the text where it says that he stayed for two more days in the town of, in the town of Sychar. Instead, he had to pass through Samaria, may have something to do with the sake of his mission. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had an appointment there. There was someone that he had to talk to. Well, Jesus looks the woman in the eyes, and I can just imagine that his eyes are full of love when he says to her, if only you knew the gift of God. Those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. Can you imagine the woman's response? What does he mean? Could this be true? Could, could this be true? The wonderful and rather convoluted conversation between Jesus and the woman then follows, in which they each try to steer the conversation toward and away from what they each want to discuss. Some people identify the woman's turns in the conversation as hoping to distract from and hide her identity from Jesus. But I want to say that central to this conversation is Jesus revealing truth to her. It's truth about herself and it's truth about the kingdom of God. Well, I, I won't go through the whole conversation line by line, but I want to say that throughout the course of this dialogue, a life is transformed. The woman is pulled from a life of sin and shame into a life of hope and belief in Jesus as the Messiah. I mentioned earlier the centrality of the geographical location of a well as being the location for this conversation. 
And the woman identifies this theme also in her conversation with Jesus. So I want to highlight the theme of worship. The woman explains to Jesus, the Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans have worshipped here on this mountain by this well, Mount Gerizim. And sort of prompts him, what do you say about this? Jesus so wonderfully subverts what she might have imagined his response to be in verses 23 and 24. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Dr. Keener highlights this verse as central to the text. The Father is seeking true worshipers. This is at the heart of Jesus' mission to visit Samaria this day, right? He's seeking a true worshiper. Well, here I want to connect us to Psalm 95. And for those of you who might come to morning prayer sometimes with us um, at WAC, you'll recognize this as the Venite, which is this call to worship. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Now, Meribah, this is the story of Exodus 17, when the people did not trust God for water and instead threatened Moses and put God to the test. This was the same God that had just brought them through the Red Sea. Even so, water is vital to human life. If you don't have it in three days, you die. Could the Israelites not trust God in this moment? Worship is the result of our gratitude for what God has done. It's not about a place. It's not about a style. It's not about a specific worship practice, although all these things God can use to help us encounter him. In answering the woman, Jesus stands above the racial and ethnic barrier between Samaritans and Jews and their places of worship. True worship, he says, is the result of the Holy Spirit and truth. There's an incredible connection here between worship and believing the truth of the words of God. The text says that the people of Samaria believed that Jesus was the Messiah because of the words of Jesus. Robert Weber, who is a worship studies theologian, recounted how many pe- recounts how many people asked him across his whole life how they can measure if they've worshipped rightly in a church service. I just love his reply. You know you have worshipped if you obey God. The result of true worship is obedience to, the God, to God the Father. And obedience is the sign of a true worshiper. This is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, later in the book of John, verses 37 through 39, Jesus makes explicit that the stream of water bubbling up in the believer is the overflow of this Holy Spirit. This is what he says. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall rivers of water, living water, flow. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So let me ask you, do you not long for a spring of water gushing up to eternal life to flow from you? Oh, that today you would listen to his voice and harden not your heart. The woman hears the words of Jesus about her life, and she receives his declaration that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, who neither trusted nor obeyed the word of God to them, we are called to remember in worshipful gratitude the works that God has done and to obey him. The heart of the story is that the Father is seeking true worshipers. I love this contrast. Jesus goes to great lengths and risk to speak with this woman. In the last chapter, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, right? But in this chapter, Jesus comes to the woman, and he meets her right where she's at. Despite all the reasons for the Samaritan woman to have a heart hardened to the message of Christ, all of the barriers that we've mentioned, she receives his word, and she asks for the living water. Her heart is freed for joyful obedience to Christ. Is your heart hardened? Is my heart hardened? Like the Israelites in the desert, are there times that God has not provided in the way that you had hoped? Can you trust God to be good to you this time? If it's not the case, maybe that's for a valid reason. Maybe your heart isn't hardened, but it's dull. Maybe it's wounded. Yet even in this, It's not too late to ask for the Holy Spirit to soften your heart towards hope. This isn't just about a renewal of life. This is about the reversal of a life from one direction to another. Here's another point I want to make. Doesn't God always come to those who are in desperate need of him, to those who are truly thirsty? I just love our passage in Romans 5. Christ dies for the ungodly. Christ dies for us while we're still sinners. Christ dies for us while we are enemies of him. He gives up his life for us. And the free gift of living water is ours to take, if only we will take Jesus at his word. Dr. N.T. Wright says of the story of the woman at the well, if you want living water, If you want living water to gush up from within you, well up from within you, you must give up the stagnant water that you've been living off of. If you want living water, you must give up the stagnant water that you've been dependent upon. He explains, for the woman, the stagnant water was her marriage life. We don't know the exact situation surrounding why she had been married five times, but we can imagine that there's a deep wound here. Emotional trauma, likely. She's likely been sinned against as many times as she may have sinned herself. 
Well, what is it for you? And what is it for me? In Christ, there's hope for a stream to bubble up in the place that is a place of shame, and in a place that is a place of hiddenness, of fear, of stagnation, of rot. It's not easy sometimes for us to imagine that things could ever change. In fact, it can be very terrifying. (laughs) I love this quote that helps us to think about the role of imagining what God could do in our lives. I'm continually struck by how people refuse to choose hope because they know that choosing hope will unsettle patterns in their lives. Patterns which are not actually making them happy, but that they can't imagine themselves without. Friends, the stagnant water will never satisfy like the living water. But praise be to God that hope is not something we have to generate for ourselves. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Well, as I pondered this text in preparation, I wondered to myself, what would have made me believe that Jesus is the Messiah if I had met him at the well that day? Would it have been that he knew everything about me? Well, that's incredible and really unbelievable, but would that be enough for me to worship somebody? Would it have been the way that he crossed cultural barriers to see me for who I really was? and explained a hope for a new type of worship in the Spirit. Perhaps. Would it be his declaration to me that he is, in fact, the Messiah? Well, how could I be sure that this is true, if so? I think it would have to be all these things. And then also being desperately thirsty. And then encountering the living water himself, Jesus. Dr. Phil Meadows preached in chapel at the seminary this past week and said, we don't have to ask for Jesus to provide the living water. It's already flowing in abundance. We just have to ask for him to make us thirsty. There's something about an encounter with Jesus himself, the person of Christ, that is life-transformative for the places in our lives where we feel shame. It has to do with vulnerability, unworthiness, and grace. Jesus knew everything about the woman standing in front of him. And through the course of the discourse, she finds out that he knows. And in spite of this, she can still stand in front of him even with all her sins on display. Friends, there is no shame in Christ. There's nothing about you, your past or your present, that is too much for Jesus. He will love you no matter what. Fully known and fully loved Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith 
into this grace in which we now stand. If we are in Christ, like the woman at the well, we are standing in God's abundant grace. The water is flowing in abundance. Are you thirsty for it? Oh, that today you would listen to his voice and harden not your heart. Streams of living water bubbling up to eternal life are available. I want to leave us with one thought. Because this isn't the end of the story. That The conversation between Jesus and the woman isn't the end of the story. The text says that she leaves her water jug and runs back to the town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? She's the first evangelist to the Samaritans. This is the mark of the beginning of the spread of the gospel from the Jews to the ends of the earth, to us. Out of the overflow of the living water suddenly springing up within her, she boldly declares the truth of who Jesus is. And it says that many believed because of her testimony. And then many more believed when they encountered Christ himself. We are standing in the long line of those who have told others the good news that Jesus is Lord. When the hope and peace of Christ abundantly spring up in your heart, friends, it's not containable. Who will you tell? Jesus offers living water. We never have to thirst again. New life in him is not just a renewal. It's a reversal of the past towards a new kingdom life. You don't have to be worthy. You just have to be thirsty. Friends, come and drink. <laughs>